What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Backseat Directors Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Hutchins, and you are listening to episode 110. And boy, do we have a special episode for all of you listeners today. Ryan and I have the great pleasure and opportunity to have Robin Bissell join us on the podcast today. Robin is the writer and director of the 2019 film The Best of Enemies, starring Sam Rockwell and Taraji Henson. The Best of Enemies tells the true story of C.P. Ellis, the president of the Ku Klux Klan in Durham, North Carolina in 1971, and Ann Atwater, a civil rights activist in Durham, and how these two people become the most unlikely friends. Everyone, we are so excited for this podcast today. I can't tell you how um, just incredibly grateful that we feel to have this opportunity. So we hope you enjoyed as much as we will. Uh, but anyway, listeners, thank you so much for downloading today's episode. Thank you for your support of the podcast. We do this for you. It's all for you. Honestly, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> um, anyway, listeners, if you want to support the podcast and support us and what we're doing, go ahead and just leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform that you're currently listening to Backseat Directors on. Write us a review. Tell us what you think. Let us know. I'd love to hear from you guys. Other than that, let's get on with the show and let's welcome Robin Bissell to the podcast. Robin, I, I mean... I can't. I can't begin to describe to you how um, honored we are, honestly, to have you on the podcast. This is an incredible opportunity for us. You know, we, we've been doing this for a few years, but um, you know, having having someone like you um, and someone who is you know uh, pretty well versed within the Hollywood industry, uh, this is a great opportunity for us. I I just want to first come out and just tell you thank you. Of course, of course. You know, maybe in a couple of years I'll be more of an A-list, so that that'll really help you guys as far as your podcast. <laughs> right now, right now I don't know. But we'll see. Yeah, I tell you what, <laughs> we're we're very impressed. This is this is a great honor. I've been looking forward to uh, look forward great. to this. Well, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. Hey, well, again, again, I really do appreciate it. So happy that we could connect and kind of get this uh, just on the schedule. But um, um, but yeah, Robin, um, just welcome to the Backseat Directors Podcast. Um, it, it's it really is a, a great pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, the purpose of you, uh, having you on the podcast is we want our listeners to get to know you. We want them to get to know, you know, your filmography more. Um, we've got some questions, obviously, you know, about uh, The Best of Enemies, which was your movie that you directed and debuted last year in 2019. Um, right. But before we get into The Best of Enemies, though, Ryan and I, we want to get to know you more and just yeah. your your career path. How did you get into filmmaking? What kind of started, um, uh, I guess, your trajectory toward where you are now? Um, well, so growing up, I, um, I was a singer from a very early age. I would sing in the school plays and do solos and all that stuff from like fourth when I was four on. Um, and then I did theater in high school, of course, did the leads in Man of La Mancha and Kiss Me Kate and blah, 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 all those things. And then I actually spent a summer semester at Oxford studying theater. Um, and oddly enough, my director was a big, uh, who is now a, over there was, is now a big, uh, a novelist named Don Winslow, who writes a lot of kind of big, um, uh, big books. But um, and so uh, when I was in college, uh, I realized I could write music. Um, probably the end of my freshman year, um, and so my sophomore year, I decided to drop out uh, and head. For, I'm originally from Philadelphia. Um, but I was at University of Maryland, and I, I dropped out and decided to head west, young man. And um, 
And everybody kind of said on my way, they said, well, you I said, well, I don't know if I want to act or I want to sing or I want to write. And they said, well, you should choose one, choose one and really concentrate on that. So I chose music. So I moved here to be a singer songwriter and, you know, got a job as a waiter. And, you know, uh, I, I, I lucked into a job at Spago. I'd never been a waiter before. So I worked I worked Swifty Lazar's last Oscar party, um, which was pretty cool in 1992. And uh but uh, formed a band, um, and uh, we got a record deal at AM pretty quickly, which then fell apart pretty quickly because <laughs> po- po- Polygram bought uh, bought uh, AM out, um, and so we had to release our own record. But we played for like three or four years in town. We toured a little bit, and we had a great following in town. We would play the Sunset Strip, play the Whiskey, the Roxy, the Troubadour, you know, every month and had a lot, big following. What was the name so, of your band? It was called Everything, which which was a problem because uh, we were very eclectic. There was two of us that were singer-songwriters and uh, my partner was actually Brian De Palma's nephew, Cameron De Palma. So um, within our group, we had all different types of songs and then between us, we had all different types of songs. So everybody had a different favorite song, but it was kind of hard for you know, record companies to kind of know who we are to sell us, you know, at the time when Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all these guys were coming up. So anyway, after four years of that, I, I said, you know, I, I think I've done my best here. Well, maybe not my best. I could probably could have stuck with it, but I did know my other love was film. And of course I had a ponytail down the back of my neck and, um, (laughs) and, uh, one of the I, there was a lot of agents in town who were fans of the band uh, in the film industry, and so I called a friend of mine uh, who was a fan of the band named Melanie Ramsair on a Friday, and I, and this was in 1995, late 95, and um, I said I'm getting out of music and I want to get in the film business. She said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I have no idea. Just get me in and I'll figure it out." Well, that Monday, she called and she goes, "I have a." interview for you and she said you won't get the job but you should start interviewing she said this writer director is about to or this writer is about to direct his first movie and he's fired like three assistants already and he needs an assistant so go meet on it so i did um and i looked him up and his name was gary ross and he had written two movies i love big and dave um and he was about to direct his first movie called pleasantville and so i went in he wasn't there i met with this young brit a uh, kid named Teddy Lynn, who's now a good friend of mine. He was like a 23-year-old co-producer. I was 27 at the time. And he tried to talk me out of the job. And I said, he just said, it's horrible. It's this. He, he was testing me, I guess. And I just said, I don't care to everything. Um, and so we talked for a while. And I left. And I got to my car. And I said, I said to myself, shit, I forgot to ask for a script. Like, that was really stupid not to ask for a script. And I walked back in. And as I walked back in, Gary Ross had come in and Teddy said to him, hey, Gary, this is the guy I was telling you about. And we didn't even talk. He just said, OK, you're hired. And he kind of threw his hand up. And that was it. So the next, you know, a day or two later, I'm in there in you know, a meeting room with Gary and Steven Soderbergh, who was a producer on the movie, and my friend John Killick, who was a producer on the movie. And that was Pleasantville. And so I was hired two months before principal photography started with no idea what I was doing. So I made a lot of mistakes. Um, but uh, I just took that attitude. First of all, you know, you I was 27 at the time. And and, you know, I realized initially immediately that when you're really interested in something, you kind of absorb stuff so fast. Right. So I was so excited 
I, you know, work 24 hours a day, whatever I had to do. And luckily for me, I started taking on a lot of responsibility, but for pleasant, you, you guys know that most post-productions are about three to four months, maybe five. Right. Um, and because of Pleasantville, because the digital intermediate hadn't been invented yet, we actually invented it on that movie. We had to scan every frame of film into a computer. You can imagine the computers in 1996. Um, so our post was 15 months long. Whoa. So all the other producers on the movie had to leave and do other stuff, with le which left me. And so I just picked up a lot of slack, and Gary and I became close, and he made me an associate producer, which is kind of a glorified assistant role um on the movie and we were really proud of the movie made, made some lifelong friends on the movie met my wife on the movie um oh, wow. became really close with toby mcguire and reese and uh and jeff bridges or jeff daniels and so um and then right after that mary parent who was our executive at new line who had done the movie moved to universal and so she offered Gary a deal and I was his producing partner for the next, you know, we moved to Universal in 98 and I was there for the next 12 years as his producing partner up until Hunger Games. I mean, up until right after Hunger Games. So, so I kind of fell into producing, you know, um, and that's, that was my journey. None are the same, but that was mine. Well, that's, a, it really is an yeah. incredible experience. I mean, something that, you know, definitely was not anticipated or expected probably on your end. Um, right. but kind of falling into it is uh, you, you ran with it though. And I think that's awesome. I, so my, my experience with Pleasantville, I, cause I, I, the first time I saw the movie was in high school and <laughs> it was my sophomore year. Um, right. so this would have been 1999. So just a year right. after the movie came out, but I remember we had to get permission from our parents you know, they had like a sign, a sign, so, <laughs> so, you know, like a, like a permission slip because they wanted to show this in school. And so even though I think, uh, the movie is PG 13, PG, yeah, PG 13, you know, it wasn't an R rated film, but some of the content in the film, I, you know, I guess the school wanted to, you know, make sure that they were, you know, crossing all their eyes or, or yeah, crossing all their T's and dotting yeah. all their eyes on Pleasantville. But I, that, that's a fantastic movie. Um, it really is. So that's, that's really awesome that that was kind of your first break. And then obviously, I mean, you've gone on to, you know, be a producer on Seabiscuit and Hunger Games, um, which were all also tied to to Gary Ross. Did I guess so your yeah. your work career, I guess, was maybe somewhat attached to his as he continued with those films as well? Yeah, well, we had our company, Larger Than Life Productions, at Universal. So we spent the next, you know, 10 years um, there. And that that was kind of the start of my wanting to move on, I think, into a different role, just because Gary, as a writer-director, he's very careful and very uh, calculated on what he wants to do. We didn't produce other stuff, really. Um, we did, like, three movies only while we were there. Seabiscuit, which was an amazing experience. Also, I got to work with Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Um, and that was, I mean, that was the, uh, I mean, to be able to visit every racetrack in America and shoot there. And, you know, we had $90 million for a period horse racing film. It just wouldn't happen today. I mean, it was just great. It was amazing. So, um, and then we did an animated movie called The Tale of Despero, um, <clears throat> which uh, we animated there in London. And so I got, actually got to spend, I probably lived there for six months off and on um, in, uh, in 2007-ish and eight, got to stay at the Soho for all that time. So I really, I did it, I did it right. Um so we did that and then, but, but, you know, for me, I had all these ideas, all these things I wanted to do, but as a producer, 
you have to find the writer. You have to get a writer to say yes. And you have to find a director. You have to get an actor. You have to do all these things. So you're waiting and waiting, waiting. And the th- and Gary's only going to choose one thing to do. And he doesn't, he's a writer director. So he doesn't make a movie every year. So it was a lot of years with only a few things. And Comcast bought out um, our deal uh, when they took over Universal in 2010. And just luckily, that's when Hunger Games came along. So we we left our deal there, and Hunger Games came along. Um, Nina Jacobson brought brought the project to Gary, uh, and I, you know, dove into that. And so uh, we were, did that for the next year and a half, two years, and then I was, you know, I was ready to move on. Oh, that uh, it really is! It really is an incredible, just kind of. Oh, <laughs> a tapestry of just different coincidences, perhaps along with yes. a lot of hard work and grit that you've, uh, you know, you've had, you've made, you've made your career. I think that's amazing. It really is. Um, yeah, so I guess with, with where things led from where you were into getting into the best of enemies, uh, obviously the best of enemies, this is your directorial debut. You know, you went from being an associate producer to an executive producer. Um, and now this was your first, uh, your first role as a director. So how, how did that yeah. come about? I mean, obviously and you, you, you know, you were part of the writing team and also producer for the best of enemies. Um, but what, what was your journey to, I guess, to making this film? So again, um, I had started to get, you know, when you work so closely, I, you know, there's all different kind of producers, right? There's those who buy the book and set it up and know the actor and they package it and they sell it to a studio. And that's their kind of forte. They're, schmoozers and there's amazing people that do that stuff. <laughs> I, I, I am less that type of person just because I was so closely uh, linked with Gary as far as our day to day. We outlined together starting on Seabiscuit. We wrote together, quote unquote. Um, and then I was there at camera every moment, every editorial day in the editing room. I, I was there. So I got to the point where I knew I could direct. I knew I'd be at least I could do it. it depend, you know, depending on how many movies I would eventually do or do eventually do is how good I get at it. You're always learning. But I also knew at that point, um, I didn't know how to get there because usually you come out of film school, you have a short or you have a commercial you've directed because people need to see something tangible to say, oh, this guy can direct a movie um, in order to give you one. So back in 2005, when I first read a little blurb about C.P. Ellis, the Klansman who had died in Time magazine, I it said he had what was the head of the Klan and turned activist. And I kind of went, what? And so I started reading about it and saw that it was kind of this strange relation, these two strange bedfellows kind of coming together. And I thought, well, that's a really entertaining. It's kind of the odd couple. And it's also meaningful. And those are hard things to find. Right. And so. I initially got the rights in 2009 as a producer. I didn't know what to do with it. We we were we were at the time Gary and I um, we were researching the Free State of Jones, which he went on to direct after Hunger Games, um, which I have a credit on, but I wasn't part of. Um, so he didn't, he wasn't going to do this movie. So I let those lapse the rights, and we went into Hunger Games. Well, after Hunger Games did really well, I knew I had a cushion for a couple years financially. And I knew the only way someone was going to give me a movie to direct is if I wrote one and I controlled it. So and this was the one movie that I had in my head long enough where I knew exactly what I wanted as far as tone and story. I didn't know how much money I was going to have. I didn't know any of those things, but I knew I could direct. I didn't know I could write. 
So I immediately got the rights back from the author and I went down to Durham and met with Ann Atwater and got her rights and got CP's family's rights. And I just started paying all these people for years, starting in 2013, I guess, or 2012 uh, out of my own pocket, like five grand here, five grand here. And I started outlining and writing and um, the script came out and people were loved the script and it was just one of those things where I'd had it in my head and so it was my first script I'd written and people loved it and pretty soon um uh, you know Danny Strong who's a friend of mine was prepping um we actually started as Gary he was also an assistant of Gary's on Pleasantville Danny Strong um you know and he created this show called Empire and he had he was still making the pilot and I hadn't seen it. It wasn't a hit. And he said, how about Taraji? And I had asked Danny to produce this movie for me because I knew Danny's name. Danny had written The Butler and he wrote Recount and he, he was creating the show Empire. And so he said, how about Taraji? I said, sure. She signed on. And then the next thing you know, I have something to sell. Um, and then it's about finding the money. And of course, when you when I wrote the script, I didn't write it knowing I'd have only X amount of dollars. Right. You write it how I wanted to see the movie, thinking, oh, I'll get I'll get 20 or 30 million dollars to make this movie. And um, and so you you know, you end up seeing what the appetite for the movie is in town. And it took us, you know, a year or so to find the money, even with Taraji. And then uh, we Sam signed on right before shooting. And uh, and that was kind of it. So it was really I loved the story. I knew there was possibility in the story. Um, and I was really proud of the script because everyone cried at the same places. Everyone was moved by it. Um, uh, but I, I did it out of necessity. I have to tell you, it wasn't like I saw the story and says, I have to write and direct that movie. I wasn't a writer director yet. So it was the one thing that I knew what I wanted out of it. And I knew I controlled it. And that was how I was going to get in the director's chair. So Yes, it means something to me, of course, uh, and to other people. But um, but that was kind of it was out of necessity that 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 was the that was the story that I chose. That's, it, it, it's fascinating just hearing the process that you went through over the span of years to years yeah. to really see the completion of this movie. Because for yeah. a lot of people, you know, and even even people like myself and Ryan who love movies and consume movies on a, on a regular basis. Uh, we really don't understand what it takes to, to make a movie, even, even a movie like the best of enemies and the time and effort that is put. And I mean, and from what you've said, there's a lot of do it yourself that you had to do. Yeah. 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 I I mean, so that, that part, it really is, it's intriguing. Not just that this is a story that interested you, but the effort that you had to go through to actually, make this happen that's awesome well yeah and again every movie is different right uh it depends on the actor you have which i think is getting less and less important not the actors aren't less and less important but as far as star power you know um it used to be star power was the only thing now there's books there's you know um so every movie is different this is just a movie that is not a it's not a you know, it doesn't say to a studio who's going to risk millions of dollars. Oh, yeah, this is a winner. This will make money because a lot of movies fail. And so, you know, it's so different with The Hunger Games. The book had already sold eight million copies and right. they were salivating, yeah. salivating to make the movie. And they were like, whatever, just fucking go. Yeah. <laughs> they, well, let me say that again. They were like, whatever, just go, you know. 
And this movie, I just believed in the script so much and other people did that I knew I could make a good movie. I didn't know how good it would be. I didn't know. And there's a lot I don't love about it because I had only 29 days to make the movie. And I think with what I wanted to do, I just didn't have the time to do everything, not nearly what I wanted, but but I but I I'm because of the actors and the crew I had. Again, this is the other thing, because I had a uh, a previous um, career as a producer, I knew a lot of really good people like Janine Opal, who I said, hey, I only have $10 million to make this movie. Will you be my production designer? And she was on, I first met her on Pleasantville. I was an assistant and she's a four-time Academy Award nominee. She said, yes. So I knew, oh my God, the movie's going to look right because she's amazing with period. She did LA Confidential. And, I mean, she's great. Uh, catch me if you can. Um, and so I knew all these people to call. Who, who I formed a relationship with, they liked me, and they said, yeah, let's do it. Um, so that really helped me achieve. When you just said how long you had to, to have to make the film, it just kind of has blown me away a little bit as well. That's like the film is such of such a high quality. It, like, it stands alongside so many other films that I've watched. That's, that's really mind-blowing. Well, I appreciate that. Again, I, there's so much I look at and I go, oh, I wish I had the time because I have to tell you, my shot lists with David Landsberg, you know, I would have six or seven or eight setups per scene. You know, I want the camera here. I want the camera here. I want to move it. I want to put a dolly down. And dude, I mean, you're in lightning and you're in Atlanta and you have no time and you say, okay, let's put the camera here, put all the actors in the middle and let's get it. And you have three caps. I think in the editing room at no time did I have more than four takes, maybe three. So I didn't have a lot of choices. Now, thankfully, I had Sam Rockwell, Taraji Henson, I had Ann Hayes, who's a friend of mine, Wes Bentley. You know, I had these great actors. So I, they were all, I was almost part of the time they were doing a play. But I couldn't be as dynamic as I wanted. There were so many times I wanted to get into an actor's face. I couldn't. I had a half an hour to get a scene. I had to set up, put the camera here and have them come in and do it. I mean, there's plenty of scenes in the movie that you see that are like that or one constant shot. And that was it. Like when Taraji, I don't know if you remember it, but when the boys ripped down the clan display yeah, and Taraji's Taraji sees them runs down the hallway, stops them. She puts the hood back on. She sees Rockwell looking at her. She walks past him. That's all one take of one camera move. And we only had two shots at it. And that was it. Now in my plan, I had 10 different camera angles. I was going to have them do it. I was going to have CP in the in the office hearing that and going, I'm going to fuck those kids up. And then, you know, uh, I was going to have, you know, all different things. Now it works. That, that scene is very touching as well. I, I remember that scene as well, how you reveal um, CP standing behind right, the focus because right. it's out of focus and you can you see him be more revealed in that focus. And I actually thought that was a, a, a very, very good touch because you... Well, it's Again. kind of a revealing of him behind there, seeing it. So it still had that vibe that he could hear and everything like that when, when he was revealed. So it may not have been how you wanted, but I actually thought that was a very, very clever way of, of doing that, to be honest. Well, again, that's one of those happy accidents you get. I agree with you. That has its own um, that has its own power when you reveal him because you're, you're so focused on Taraji and then you see CP looking at her. Now, for me... I wanted to see a tinge of CP feeling badly when he saw her looking at that. Now that might've been overwrought and maybe I was better off this way, but I was forced into doing that and you liked it and it touched you. And so maybe it's better. I, I can tell you something else about that scene. 
happy accidents. So I wrote the scene as, and that's a, that actually happened in real life, that scene. But um, I wrote the scene where he, she was, the, the clan hood was on a hook uh, or a, a nail on the wall. And she was going to hang it back up and, oh, my God, and touching the, the clan hood for the first time in her life. And it's the same reaction. Well, we couldn't, for some reason, the prop guys couldn't deal with getting a nail or something. And they brought this, these mannequins. And I was like, I had no thought in my head about a mannequin. And I was like, no, no, no. What are you talking about? And then as I'm standing there saying, no, 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 it hit me. Like, wait a minute. If she puts the hood back on a mannequin, it's like a real Klansman is standing in front of her. Yeah. I had never thought of that. So thank God the prop guy, because it's much better. She puts it on and there's a man staring. At her. And it was way creepier. But anyway, back to my point. Those are the kind of things you have to do on a short schedule. I mean, really on any schedule. Um, you have to come up like I had, you know, I had to boot every setup I had and we were going to do one shot and I had a great crew to be able to pull it off. But again, there's a lot of that movie that's wide. And, uh, I think I could have gotten more emotion and some more dynamics out of it, but next time. <laughs> so with 29 days, um, you know, it, that's the time frame that you had. I, I believe the entire film was, was shot in Georgia. Was it not? Yes. yes. So did you, did you and your team, did you guys spend the, the entire 29 days in Georgia until you wrapped filming? Yeah. So we, I wanted to shoot in Durham, of course, and Durham wanted me there. Duke university wanted me there, the, the tourism board, but the tax laws had changed in North Carolina. You know, when we shot, we shot hunger games in North Carolina. It was great. It was a 25% straight rebate. Every dollar you sent, they gave you 25 cents back. Um, that had changed. It was a grant program. And so when you're talking about a $10 million, $12 million film, um, saving a million dollars is a lot. You know, when you're talking about a hundred million dollar film, saving a million dollars, nah, it's not worth it. Yeah. Uh, not, not to mention my billionaire, uh, angel, uh, who was my, who wrote the check for the movie was a businessman in Georgia. So we chose Georgia, first of all, a lot of crew there. So you, you know, you don't have to fly a lot of people in and all that. So we were there for, we had a good, we had a good prep though. We had about a two and a half month prep. So we, we were there for, yeah, we were there three and a half months total, somewhere around there to four months. So in, in Georgia, I mean, Georgia is, I, I I believe over the last number of years, it's really kind of made itself into a, a prime destination for filming. Was your experience over, overall positive filming there? Excellent. It, it was great. They really know what they're doing. I had now Louisiana was like that for a while. Um, uh, and I think people have moved out of Louisiana for some reason to Georgia, but Atlanta really is the second Hollywood. Um, and it was great. First of all, I hadn't been to Atlanta in a long time. Great city. The food is amazing. Everybody's really sweet. Um, the, there's tons of crew. There's like eight movies deep of crew there because they, you know, every Marvel movie, I mean, you know, you yeah, name it. Yeah. Tyler Perry, Marvel, everybody's making their movies now. So it was really great. A lot of crew. And we weren't in Atlanta Central. I mean, we we stayed there and lived there, but we were jumping all over. We'd go to Macon for DC. We were driving an hour here, hour there just to get what we needed. But a uh, great experience. Loved it. Loved so it. now when you say that really the beginnings of this movie, I guess, started back in 2009, is that when you saw the, you said the Time Magazine article about CP Ellis? 2005. Or 2005. Okay. So, so, I mean, you have years, years of preparation and work to get this movie, you know, off the ground. Um, yeah. You said uh, um, Taraji was uh, signed on pretty early. 
but Sam Rockwell didn't, he didn't sign on until just before shooting started. Well, so that's a long story, uh, but I'll tell it quick. Uh, so initially when you have a movie like this, you're, it's a two hander for the most part. Um, you know, a lot of people have, there's some people who were a little upset that I focused too much on CP, but the movie for me, what I wanted to show in the movie was how, how, where racism comes from. Right. So I needed to understand him more than her because she's just a hero. She just is. Right. Um, the other thing was I only had Taraji for three and a half weeks. I had Sam for six. So I had to cut some stuff with Taraji that I couldn't film. But anyway, um, so Taraji signed on very quickly. Um, and at that time, you put your list down, you know, of actors. Right. And there's everybody on it. There, I had a list of 20 guys who I thought could play this role who were anywhere from because CP was 42 in at that time. Uh, but back then, 42 year olds looked a lot older, if you can imagine. So yeah. anybody anybody from 35 to 55 or 60 could have played this role. So I had a pretty big list. I had my favorites, which I won't talk about. Sam, of course, is at the top because I think he's one of the best uh, actors alive for me. Um, but so you start thinking about who, and when Taraji signs on and she's suddenly the hit, the big you know, star of this new hit show, <clears throat> her team and people are always pushing, you know, you got to go get Bradley Cooper. You, you know, you got these guys, you know, Leo, everybody's talking about these guys. And you're like, they're not, you know, it, first of all, these guys take two months to make a decision, first of all. But very early in the process, I got an incoming call from Paul Giamatti's agent. <clears throat> and I thought, oh, Paul Giamatti, done. I'm okay. I'm good. So I flew to New York, met with Paul. He signed on. And we were about to shoot in uh, the spring of 2016. And uh, he was on this new show, Billions, as you probably heard. And Billions got picked up. And so here's the other thing people don't know, and you guys probably don't either, is that Taraji is on this hit TV show, which means from August to February, she's booked. She's out. In fact, July to February, sorry, every year. So I had a three-month window to shoot her anywhere in those three months, right? Well, now Paul's on a new show, and Paul, his show gets picked up, but they're bringing him back a month early. And so he's got to be back at the end of May. So we, we couldn't work it out. So I said, okay, we're going to wait a year. So we were going to wait a year, and then I forget what happened, but Paul had to beg out or something. And at that point, Taraji had already signed on for a movie called Proud, Proud Mary right after the next season of Empire. So starting in February, she was going to shoot Proud Mary till the end of April or early May. And she goes, okay, I'll come, we can do this. Let's, let's smush it in in those three and a half weeks or four weeks. And that's when I, I said, you know what? I'm just going to cast Sam Rockwell. I've only wanted to work with Sam. And this was it. And I sent uh, his agent script and she loved it. And I was on the phone with Sam Rockwell that weekend, uh, which was in, God, I want to say March of 2017. Um, but again, Taraji went from all of Empire to Proud Mary in Boston. She got to me two days before filming and three and a half weeks and four weeks she flew back for Empire. I mean, that was how she was exhausted. Absolutely. Yeah, I bet. Wow. So that's kind of how it goes. You you get momentum. You have to pick your windows, especially for this type of movie, because no one's making any money. They're all doing it. I mean, they're making a little bit of money, but they're 
that kind of movie they're doing it for because they love the movie they're not doing it for the payday so you can't you know they're not doing you it's not that they're doing you a favor it's that you have to shoehorn yourself into their existing schedule that's going to pay them the big bucks so um just you know any movie like this that gets made is a miracle any any little movie like this it's a miracle well and sam rockwell he was coming off his uh I, I believe it, it wasn't his first Oscar nomination, but he had just won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor from uh, um, uh, Three Billboards Outside Three Billboards. Ebbing. Yeah, outside Ebbing, Actually, Missouri. he didn't. He didn't win that till after we shot. So we shot in the summer. We shot in the summer of 2017. You got to remember. So and so he won. Billboards didn't come out till that fall. And then so he won after we had filmed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it would have been, uh, um, yeah, uh, I guess winter of 2018 or January, February, whenever the Oscars were that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what was it like working? What was it like working with um, um, both Sam Rockwell and Tajani? So um, <clears throat> Sam and I had – Sam actually uh, begged off of another movie before mine because he wanted to prepare. Sam is the most prepared person on the planet. I mean, really, is he flew to North Carolina – Hung out with CP's family. He went to see Larry, the, um, the the mentally challenged son, who still is alive out at Murdoch Center. Um, and so Sam and I had a lot of time to talk. Uh, he's amazing. He's also a better human. He, he, as good as he's an actor, he's a better human being. So we hit it off. We're good mates, and uh, that, that was for you. Um, and uh, and uh, so that was great. Um, Taraji, I'd only met once before she got there, two days before filming. <laughs> but, but, but we hit it off great. They're both such pros. They loved each other. They hung out. It was it was a really good experience. There was a couple bumps only within the filming, just, um, but that was that's it was just a great experience uh, the entire yeah. time. Just to, bet, have, to have them, the sound. so lucky. Yeah, they're both of them are great. So the the best of enemies is I, I think it's one of the more inspiring stories that a person could learn about, um, especially with everything that's going on right now. Obviously, a lot of social unrest within the United States um, and even outside of the United States. Um, you know, and, and your movie was released just a year before um, everything that has happened this year in 2020. Um, but obviously, there's there's a lot there's a lot to take away from your film and a lot of. Uh, just different things I think audiences could learn um, if they're, I guess if, I mean, because for me, I mean, the, the, mu- the movie is full of incredible, inspiring messages. But if, if there was one message, uh, Robin, that you want the audience to take away from seeing your film, um, is there, is there one message that you hope uh, kind of reaches the hearts of the audience, uh, you know, that get to see this movie? Uh I mean, I, you know, to me, um, it's what people take away from it should be for them, um, uh, which, you know, uh, that might be that's the, that's me cheating my way out of that, uh, that question. But um, there are a lot of things to take in about that movie and about their story, forgetting the movie, it's their story. And so um, the one thing, you know, we talk about hate, we talk about racism um, and, for me, it was why did this guy change and, and how did he change? And of course, it was due to the fact that uh, Ann Atwater and Bill Riddick and, and all those folks cared enough about this horrible racist to change him. And not only that, knew that he was a leader in his community 
Um, and so the thing I guess I'd say is we all know Ann Atwater was a hero, especially after you read about her, after you see the movie. Um, but there is a courage of CP's conviction. He wasn't a good man. He was a good father. He was a good this, but he wasn't a good man until that moment because he, he had a change of heart, but he didn't have to admit it. I think there's a lot of people that have change of hearts that don't admit it because they're, there's too much on the line. We see it every day in politics. We cannot be a country of all these politicians on both sides just saying no to each other because they have that many different convictions. No way. Right. At least he said, well, this is going to ruin my life. But that's the truth. I had a change of heart because of Ann Atwater and because of Bill Riddick. So I think there's a courage of leadership um, between these two that because they were leaders, and this is a really verbose answer to your question, but because they were leaders, their change actually did have an effect. You look at, I look at CP's family, his lineage, they're not, they don't hate anymore. They're friends with Ann Atwater's grandchildren. I mean, that choked it off for the most part. Um, and guys that were in the youth corps under CP that I talked to, a couple of them said they changed their ways because of, they saw the light, you know, because CP changed. Um, so, for me, it's just, I guess the word possibility is what I want people to take away. If this guy, who is the head of the Klan in North Carolina, can be shown the right way, why can't anybody? I mean, that's it, you know. Um, that, that's really great, because I, I feel like I feel like often, you know, we get inundated with information on you know, things that are happening or things that people have said that, you know, might be offensive or things that people have done that might be offensive. Um, or obviously, you know, when you get to see CP within the context of, of the best of enemies and, and that, uh, yes, he, 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 he is involved in some extremely racist activities and a lifestyle that, that, you know, would be, you know, even then obviously it was frowned upon, but, you know, in, in the context of 40 years later, you know, yeah. if if we knew an individual like CP, you know, and the use of social media, you know, he'd be the target of a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of criticism. And, and, and maybe it would be warranted as well. Of course, warranted. Of course. It, one of for me, one of the more just poignant moments of the movie um, was when they're trying to decide who are going to be the co-chairs, you know, and then you, you have um, you have Bill Riddick that you know, he has his nominations, um, but CP Ellis and Ann Atwater need to accept those nominations. Well, Ann Atwater is, you know, she's on the fence. Um, but then there is, um, Oh, H Howard Clement who, yeah. who volunteers himself. And I don't know if, <laughs> and maybe you could answer this. I don't know if he would, he knew that uh, this would, uh, kind of spark, you know, Ann Atwater, Ann Atwater to, to, to be the co-chair for the charrette, but he stands right. up and he, he calls CPL's brother for, yes. for me, at least when I see this, this scene, everything about it seems sincere and, and why he calls him brother. And the fact that, that a black man is addressing a, a Klansman as brother was <laughs> so, it, 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 I mean, not only that, I think it, 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 shocked the white people in the room but also the black people that you know <laughs> Anne's response obviously you know it 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 motivated her to become the the co-chair but but yeah. there there was a real 
um, a real sense of of heartfelt honesty about what Howard Clement did to call C.P. Ellis brother that I think was maybe even the beginning of C.P. Ellis's change to to know that in spite of you know so much hatred and racism and prejudice towards the black people of this community that C.P was called brother by a man that, you know, supposedly he was taught and, you know, raised to hate. And that, that scene for me, I just, I just remember that scene and, 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 you know, you, you just get to know CP Ellis in, in a very human way. And so, you know, in today's day and age and culture where we, we judge off of, you know, 240 characters from a tweet, you know, or a picture from Instagram, you know, we think we know someone, um, but I, that's what I really appreciate about your film is that you get to see C.P. Ellis. And even though, yes, I mean, he, he, he was not a good man, you know, I guess before the change that he went through, um, it, 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 it we give him an opportunity to be redeemed. And I, I just appreciate that so much about about the best of enemies. But well, I'm yeah. glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Um, and that, by the way, that's true. That made The Washington Post when he called him brother. Um, uh, and when CP talks about that moment, he all, first of all, he says, and, and even Howard, when he talks about it in depth, the whole room was yelling at Howard Clement, like all the African-Americans were <laughs> screaming at Howard Clement because the difference about Durham and other places was Durham. There was a real class system and fight between the African-Americans, not just the whites, because, um, there was the, the, the biggest black owned business in the world at that time, the North Carolina mutual. And Howard was a lawyer there, and they were all rich. And so Anne and her folks hated Howard Clement. And, but Howard did. He also tried to shake CP's hand, and CP wouldn't shake it after. Right. Um, and Howard just called him brother because he was speaking the truth. He said, look, that man's speaking from the heart. That's it. Um, and so, yeah, that, and by the way, that was the beginning. And, and for me, the movie, I wanted it to hinge on many different little things that started playing on CP to have a cumulative effect. I know some people who didn't like the movie and wrote about it said, oh, why? Because Anne helped this black woman helped his son. No, that's not it. Howard Clement calls him brother. Uh, Bill Riddick says, hey, I'm going to give you a chance to speak. Um, you know, little things throughout the movie. Uh, you know, the hardware store owner played by John Gallagher Jr. That was an invention of mine, but that was what I wanted. I wanted to see another white man and why he respected another black man and then have CP say, holy shit, you know, yeah. why is why does this man seem like a better man than me? So there's a lot of little things, but that was and, and in real life. That Howard Clement moment was the beginning of his change because he couldn't believe this man. A called him brother and C was trying to shake his hand. He's the head of the clan. Um, yeah. But the truth is. I don't care how racist you are. Everyone is human. And so when you get to know the human qualities in people, not that they're always good, it means they are human. They have the ability to change. And the biggest thing that I learned about the Klan in researching this movie was that a lot of these working class, lower class, Southern whites or Midwestern whites who joined the Klan did not necessarily join because they were because racism ruled their lives. They joined because they wanted to be a part of something. They were nothing. They hated their lives. They were in pain. They were poor. Here's this place that has fiery cross and and robes and men together. And I'm a part of something. 
And that all that means is they're easy prey for that, right? And so the white power structure loves that because they can get those men together and hate. And you see it today. You see it today. Same deal. Same deal. People want to feel a part of something. They want to feel like somebody. And sometimes they're easy prey. Yeah, I I think from however I kind of take from the film or something like you're saying there about CP and that human quality, I kind of felt that um, watching it and the message kind of I I took from it was because um, I watched it again quite recently and and with everything going on in the world, like say that that human quality, but how the route the method that it takes for him to to change and to see the black community as also a fellow human beings and good people and that more of an inspiration and the it doesn't take you don't use hate to change hate sort of mentality it's it's the good nature of of the black community and how they are with cp and how other people see the black community and and all that changing of inspiring but inspiring via kind of good methods and and not in a hate versus hate kind of way and for me, it just reminded me very much of very similar methods of like how Martin Luther King wanted to do stuff. And it really resonated with me through that. And I, I found it really inspiring right to the point where you see how his garage starts to struggle at the end, his, his uh, petrol garage. And, and then you see all those cars. That's where I, that's where I got very emotional during that scene when um, all those cars lined up to, to help him with his business. And it, and it shows just that, that human quality that we're all humans. And if you do, if you do something nice, we'll do something nice. And, and we come together as a community. And, and that was the overall message I took. And I, and I, and I think it was very powerful again, watching this film again, during a, the time that we're in, it, it hit me 10 times harder really, because it's, it's really been in the forefront of, of a lot of things. So I, I really appreciate watching that again. And that message that I took from it. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. No worries. Just one thing that I also wanted to mention, this might be a scene that um, it, it might go um, overlooked compared to a lot of the more emotional uh, scenes of the film. But there, there's a scene where CP's wife, Mary, brings, um, I, I don't know if it's a jar of jam or marmalade or something like that. Uh, jam, yeah. Yes, yeah. To, to say thank you to Anne for helping get their son placed in a private room. Um, and... You know, obviously, at least the way that the movie depicts Mary, she's she is very aware of CP's antics. She's very aware of his stances, you know, towards the black community and black people. And yet she she is still faithful to him. She doesn't she doesn't condone his actions. She doesn't. But she's also not ridiculing him and, you know, and and forcing him to change. She continues to love him and stand by him. But she is also reaching out to Anne. And I think this this scene where, where she goes to Anne's house to say thank you, they sit down and have a glass of iced tea, and you know they just get to know each other. I think in this moment as well, Anne begins to understand that, you know, as, as CP's wife, Mary may not be racist, she may be married to a racist, but that how she could be easily implicated as a racist because she's married to CP. And yet, yes. and yet this moment, just to sit down and have a simple conversation, I think just opens both of their eyes more to, to just the civility and humanity of what can be achieved. And I, that's another scene that I, I just really enjoyed as well. Well, and it's, it's what goes back to what Ryan was saying that there is a, there is something about, um, <laughs> the way that the, the, uh, the victims in this 
de- in this centuries-old crime that America has uh, put upon the, the black community, how ups- how how uh, how they fight with such respect, uh, with self-respect, and how they fight is so, is so above board. You talk about what Martin Luther King did, or what you, what Howard Clement did, or Bill Riddick. There is a real calculation behind it. Whereas the whites who have it all are the violence, are the anger, are the hate, which is amazing to me. It's like, uh, anyway, but um, to go back to that scene, yeah, I think that Mary, and we, I, I think about Mary, and CP said often, there's a documentary you can watch, but he says, yeah, she she only abided it because she knew he enjoyed the Klan, but she didn't like the Klan because when anytime you're made president of the clan, the clan, the president's wife automatically becomes head of the women's auxiliary, which I guess is a, is a thing. And Mary said, no, 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 no. I'm not the head of anything. And he said, what do you mean? It'll embarrass me. She said, no, I'm not doing it. Now, there's a moral dilemma that she probably lived with every day. I, and I don't know that she was – I know she wasn't racist, but I don't know. Look, you are – somewhat uh responsible in your condoning of your spouse uh if they're doing that so i, I don't want to let mary off the hook altogether i heard i heard i never met her she died of cancer in the 80s but but um she uh was a pr- apparently a great lady tough lady great mother um but again like you said um what is it how much responsibility goes on mary um, in that, you know, but, but they're married, you know, he didn't, he wasn't a clan member when they got married. Right. You know I mean, right. his father had been, but he was not, I'm sure he was racist. Um, you know, um, uh, but anyway, so yeah, but I love that scene too. In fact, I think it actually happened. It was, it was in different circumstances, but she brought her a salad. I just didn't think a salad was right. I just wanted jam. I thought it was a little <laughs> Was a little better. I think history might crap. forgive you for uh, for making that <laughs> that slight change. <laughs> well, Anne always talks about. She always told me that. Well, when Mary brought me that salad, and I'm thinking, what? Salad. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, just with the best of enemies being your first, your first directorial role. Um. Obviously, I'm sure you went through a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. Um, but what I guess, what are some things that you learned from directing that movie that you, you know, some things that really stuck with you that you will take with you on whatever it is, the next movie that you plan on directing? Um, well, I mean, you learn something new every day. You make hundreds of mistakes a day. And so I think that there are some things that you, you can't change in the moment. Um, uh, and there are some things that you find that in the heat of, again, I was a producer on the movie too. And one of the more, more I think I was the, the, the most experienced producer on the movie. So every day, like I'll tell you about my first day, my very first day in the director's chair, I'm pretty nervous, but my AD was smart because we scheduled the tracking shot of them shooting at the KKK range, right? So it's going to be a pretty shot. You set up a dolly, they're all shooting it. So we get that shot. This is my first day directing. And then a lightning strike hits within seven miles. Now, the law is, or the film law is, the medics have, uh, you know, their their app on the phone tells them where lightning is hitting. So if a lightning strikes within seven miles, you have to shut off the generators for half an hour. So, um, <laughs> so 
that and by the way, even if you're inside somewhere, you're using generators because you're just using so much power. You can, you know, if you're at a house or whatever. Um, so we had to shut the generators down and it was raining, but I didn't care. I, rain would have been great. I, rain's always good production value unless the next day is another half of the scene and it's sunny. You can't do that. But um, so we get to 28 minutes on, of the generators being and we're sitting there for 28 minutes. We're about to turn the generators back on and another lightning strike. And guess what? The clock resets. So for three hours, we sat there three hours of lightning strikes I couldn't shoot. So I got one shot and then three hours of waiting. So I knew the next day, which was everything in the Cloudern Hall, I was screwed on. So the next day was a 15-hour day and everybody was exhausted. We went to like three in the morning and I, I don't like that. Um, and there's all these guys, all these extras. And so the next day, uh, somebody came up to me and said, you know, you should tell everyone we're going to wrap early today, like 11 hours. And I almost did it. And I thought, I stopped myself. And as luckily I had enough experience. I said, you know what? I'm not going to tell them that. I'm just going to do that. Because if I tell them that, and then some other emergency happens, I don't want to look like I'm a liar. So I didn't tell them that. I, I th This person who told me this thought I would boost morale on the third day. Because everyone was worried. <laughs> you know, because when you go 15 hours your second day, um, uh, everyone thinks, oh, this shoot's going to be horrible. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so he wanted to boost but anyway, I don't know why I told the story because that's not really what I learned. But um, but that was just one of those things. You have to adapt. And so I did learn that if you have a lot of smart people and you listen to people, listening is a big thing as a director. You can't be totally shut off to others' ideas because it's not just ideas about story. It's ideas about what are you going to do three hours from now? Because every day I'm making company moves every other day in the first four weeks. And so – you have three hours here and then you move and you have four hours there and I'm stuck in this scene for whatever reason. And I have to say, you know what, am I going to go over on this scene or can I, can I finish this how I like early? Cause I need more time for that scene. Or do I spend more time here? Cause I can get that in one shot or two. It's that kind of thing, but there's amazing capacity for creative solutions in crisis as long as you listen to people. So that's really important. Um, but I learned a lot, I will tell you. Uh, the biggest thing, although I have to tell you, the biggest thing was already in me, which is that nothing is an emergency. You cannot, you cannot uh, uh, display that there's an emergency ever. And that was my role as a producer. I was the good, I was the make everybody feel good producer to the director in all those other movies. You know, I, I went to everybody, oh, it's gonna be fine. And so, <laughs> you know, I always know there's a, there's a solution, some kind of solution. Now, what I will tell you is what I haven't had to deal with yet, and I hope I never do, um, is if I get in the weeds in a scene where the actor's not getting it, or I'm not getting it out of my actor, I haven't had to go through that. That apparently can be very difficult if you're just not getting it from an actor and you're screwed. Yeah. Um, uh, I haven't had to deal deal with that. In fact, none of my movies, I don't think I've had to deal with that. Um, but this was the first as a director, so it's really on you. Now, I happen to think it's possible that you're not getting from an actor. When that happens, it's because the script or the tone isn't clear necessarily. So you're trying to search for something as a director, maybe. Does that make sense? Um because I will tell you, almost every job on a, on a, as a director on a movie set, you can learn. You can learn 
um, how to talk to, if you do enough homework, you can learn how to talk to a cinematographer. You can learn what a lens is, what a lens looks like, what's, what a 50 looks like compared to a, a hundred. You can learn how to talk to a production designer or, you know, there's hard, there's harder keys to talk to. Talking to an actor is not something you can learn. You can try, but you have to really know, you have to have enough empathy and you have to know each actor, especially your lead actors, because you have to talk to them all differently because you can't give them line readings. You can't say, say it like this. I know people do do that. And sometimes actors are fine with that. Dustin Hoffman's fine with that. We did the animated movie, Dustin Hoffman. He goes, I don't know why people don't like that. Just tell me how you want me to say it. So, um, <laughs> well, that was, that was a really good impression. You honestly yeah, just sounded like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, talk about stories. That guy has stories. And we booked, we booked two extra hours every time he came in to do his voiceover, just cause he loved telling stories. And of course his stories are about your favorite movies, which are unbelievable. So anyway, but to talk to an actor, it's how, it's how to, it's how to, to how to get articulate to them what you want without telling them how to do it. That's the hardest part. I believe on the day on a movie set, if you're having trouble now, I didn't have trouble because I had Taraji and Sam and you know, uh, the rest of the cast. So um, I don't think I answered your question perfectly, but I tried. No, that was a great answer. It really was. Yeah, it really was. (laughs) I mean, so, and with that said, what, what's, what's up uh, for the future, future plans and uh, other films that might be on your, on your schedule. What's, what's next for you? Well, who knows when we'll get back to work. However, um, so I have a couple of things going I'm I'm actually writing a spec thriller right now. Like um, my, my favorite movies kind of to watch are political thrillers, thrillers, true crime, stuff like that. Um, so I've been wanting to do that. I've had a great idea for a couple of years that I decided to write. So I'm writing that. I'm, I'm pretty close to being done, although my wife would tell you I'm not. She keeps yelling <laughs> at me to finish. Um, and um, I actually just made a deal with Amazon to write and direct and produce the Merle Haggard story with Sam Rockwell. Oh, so oh that, nice. Yeah. That, will, that will be announced this week. So... Uh, yeah, we're going to concentrate on his time. You know, he was in San Quentin prison for three years and got out and then became a star in like in the 60s. So we're just going to focus on the 60s, his early career. And uh, it's really cool. Great story. Awesome. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. no, that sounds very exciting. Um, so, Robin, one of the things, and this is what we want to get you out on. One of the things that uh, Ryan and I like to do with any new guests that we have on the podcast is uh, – you know, usually we, we just have other, other people like, like Ryan and myself, just movie fans, <laughs> you know, not necessarily I'm just film. a movie fan too. I'm yeah. just a movie fan. Well, and so obviously that's, you know, being a fan of movies is what led you to where you are now. And so we have just a set of questions that we like to ask everybody before we, sure. we get you out of here. Um, sure. so th- this, these are just questions to kind of get into, uh, get to know you as a movie fan, maybe not necessarily as a director, but as a movie fan. Yeah. Um, so, so basically you're going to try to date me is what you're going to, you're going to tell everybody how, how I'm 50 years old. Yeah. And no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. No, it's wisdom, wisdom, not, not age. It's wisdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Robin, question yes. number one, question number one okay. is 
what is your desert island movie if there's only one movie that you can take with you to be deserted on an island what is that movie yeah i mean these are the ones we talk about over beers right um usually you you give five andre but okay one <laughs> um I, I, that's a hard I, I know everybody everybody wants to you know they want to be able so, to choose more than one we'd be here for another hour if we could have five. <laughs> well, so, so i don't know about you guys but i'm the type of movie fan that i'll watch my favorite movies over and over instead of a new one that I haven't seen if I don't think I'm going to like it or I've heard iffy things about it. I'd just rather be inspired by a good movie, especially as a filmmaker. Because part of me thinks, not that I'm a genius or anything, but part of me thinks I don't want to see a bad movie so it doesn't like you know mess my brain up or something. You know? That's interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I watch movies over and over again. So this question's not as hard for me, uh, although you guys are movie fans, so you probably watch a lot over and over. I mean, there's the obvious ones, which I won't. Do I probably say, because uh, it's it's how you want to feel on a desert island. Uh, I probably say the deer hunter. Wow, I probably okay. say the deer. Yeah, that's out uh, of left field. I would not have expected uh, that. No. <laughs> yeah, I probably, a because just the level of talent. Uh, De Niro, John Cazale, Meryl Streep, Chris Walken. I mean, come on. Um, the thing I love about the deer hunter is it's small town, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. And I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania and it's a, there's a lot of these buddies who are buddies since they were in high school. And I have a group of buddies, like all my best friends of my life are from high school, uh, still are. We have a group of 10 guys. Um, and there's something about that movie, uh, that there's, there's such a switch in that movie where, you see kind of this mundane existence of De Niro and these guys and they're hunting and they're drinking and there's a wedding and they're having fun and they're and they fight. And, and then you go to war for about 20 minutes and then he comes back and you see all those same things through a different lens, exactly the same things. And even to the audience, they all look petty. They all look stupid. Even Merle Streep, I'm working at the market. You know, it's all changed even for the audience, not just for Robert De Niro. So, uh, I know it's kind of a heavy movie toward the end, but I don't know. something about it. I just love the deer. I could watch it every day if I had to. So uh, That's a fantastic answer. Really good. And I can tell you that is out of all the people that we've had on the podcast, no one has chosen the deer hunter. So oh, you're the first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Robin, when you go to the movie theater, what is your go-to movie theater snack? Well, I've tried not to do this lately, but well, I, there has been no movies, but it is peanut M&Ms always. Peanut M&Ms. Now, are you are you the type of movie um, movie fan that throws in the peanut M&Ms with the popcorn? <laughs> no, that's my wife though. So she <laughs> wants the savory and sweet. But they at at the ArcLight, which is what is only five minutes from my house, which we go to all the time. Or I used I used to go at night, just three to four nights a week by myself, whatever was playing. But um, they have the caramel corn, which is great. I yeah. love that too. But I do not put no. I I like my that is, diet that is such, my a, that's such an American thing. <laughs> Is it? There's no caramel corn. No, I've never in my life experienced <laughs> anyone that I know, and I've been to the cinema with a few people mixing their chocolate in with their popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. You're right. It is very American. I don't know. It's like you can't get enough of every taste. You got to have it all at once. <laughs> uh, if I were a very fat country, uh, Ryan. <laughs> and Ryan's going to get to experience that hopefully soon and down in your neck of the woods as well. So, <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, question number three, Robin, um, what is the first movie that made you cry? 
Oh boy. First, God, when can you cry as a man other than like, <laughs> other than Rudy and Hoosiers? What can I say? Uh, well, I remember getting misty at, I remember getting misty the first time I saw The Graduate. I think I was 16 when he goes to look for her. And he's like, fuck it, I'm going to go and take her. And there was a, there was, I don't know if I teared up, but maybe The Graduate. I know for sure I cried at Mr. Holland's Opus, but that that's just because I'm a softie. <laughs> Both great uh, movies. Great movies. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely cry at Rudy in the same two places, which is just so weird. Um, but yeah, prop. I guess I'd say The Graduate, even though it's not a real crying movie, but there was something when he went to get her. And it was the first time I'd seen it. And I was, I was, you know, in love at the time. And I think, you know, for me, I don't cry at like death scenes and shit. I don't think those are, death scenes are too easy or when a dog dies or shit like that. Like that's like. Manipulative emotional scenes. (laughs) Yeah, like I cry when like the son forgives the father or you know, a person falls in love. Like at the, even at the end of Tootsie, you know, when Jessica Lang is like, she's going to, she's going to, okay, I'm going to go with Dustin Hoffman. I, I get teary. It's like, wow, that's really going to move me. So, All right. Question number four. So I'm going to change this one just a little bit um, because I, I want to know more specifically um, who is maybe the director or filmmaker that has inspired you the most. Inspired me the most. Well, there's two answers to that question, if that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. So story-wise, they're both, I think, incredibly detailed story-wise. One of them is incredibly uh, stylistic as well, which is important to me. Like, I love, you know, there's a lot of movies, thrillers and shit like that, that I love that are dynamic, like Three Days of the Condor or... Um, you know, all the president's men shot by Gordon Willis, you know, all those kind of movies are great. Um, so I, I, there is style, but if there's no, if, if the story isn't great and compelling, the movie's not a movie to me. Um, and so for me, there was a run there in the seventies and 80, early eighties of Sidney Lumet that I really love. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon Network is a really great movie. The Verdict is one of my favorite movies how it looks, the story, the the, uh, the themes in the movie. And so there was something about Sidney Lumet at that time that I really loved. Uh, and, of course, anything with Jack Warden. I don't know if you Jack Warden is, but if you know who Jack Warden is, for some reason, any movie in the 70s or 80s with Jack Warden is a great movie, like Being There or, you know, All the President's Men. But uh, so Sidney Lumet, I would say, even though I don't think he's – the strongest stylistic director. There are other ones like Kubrick or, um, you know, you know, everyone says Kurosawa, all those people, but I'm, I, I, you know, I, I love style too. Uh, lately, and we have the same attorney, which thank God. Uh, but, um, I, there's nobody on par with Quentin Tarantino to me at all. Uh, in the, especially in the last 10, 10 years, I, and I, people disagree with me on this, but, for me, his last four movies, I could just watch over and over again, starting with uh, Inglorious Bastards. I yeah. love Inglorious Bastards. I think Django is an absolutely real movie on slavery. Uh, I love Hateful Eight. It's long, but I love it. And I loved, uh, and I was a huge um, 
I was a huge student of Helter Skelter and Charlie Manson. It always fascinated me. In fact, I went to the house before they tore it down at a party. Friends of mine had been renting the house in the 90s, oddly enough, where the Sharon Tate murders happened. And um, I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And so for me, I think some people don't can't get away from Quentin's like that. There's a kind of that cartoon um, violence in some of them. But I can look past that because his style, his story, he spends so much time on his scripts. They're slow, flawless to me. And I just, I, there's just not, a, I, 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 you know, I, I, there's nobody else like Tarantino for me. Especially uh, have, you him? have you met him? Have you met him? I've met him twice, not in a like, hey, Robin, how are you? Just like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. And the first time I ever was near him, a friend of mine and I went to the Hollywood, went to the Arclight up here, which has the dome, you know, the Cinerama dome. And we went to the Dome for the opening night of, not, not a premiere, just the first night of, um, of uh, uh, the Zodiac. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. Yep. Yeah, with Maybe Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, the, the Dome, I don't know if you've probably haven't been to the Dome, but to sit up close to the Dome is terrible because it's a wraparound screen, right? I remember yeah. going years ago to see... Uh, a re-release of Apocalypse Now, and you can actually do this as the helicopters are going by. It's too close to the screen. So we sat there in like the fifth row, and as the lights went down, there it was me, my buddy, who's a cinematographer, and then an empty seat. And we see this figure pass in front of the screen and come down the aisle, and it's Tarantino all by himself, just coming to see Zodiac by himself, sits in the <laughs> middle next to him. And the whole movie, he's muttering to himself as a fan of this movie. And I thought it was awesome he was like oh my god that <laughs> he laughed and he, he loves movies so clearly and he would talk to himself about this shot and it was amazing it was just that was like as good as the movie you know and that's before i think he did my four favorite movies like i know everyone loves pulp fiction and i think it's inventive and all that stuff but to me the last four are just just seamless seamless yeah, once upon a time in Hollywood is actually the movie that made my wife a fan of Quentin Tarantino because I I had showed her all the old classics like Pulp Fiction and stuff like that and she right. she right. wasn't a fan and the Kill Bill movies are some of my favorite and she didn't yeah. like those either but I showed her Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and she's like this is yeah. one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> that, for me, uh, for me, I'm not the big I'm not the biggest fan. Unfortunately, yeah. Tarantino is his style. This isn't one that captures mine. Um, Andre oh. knows I'm a huge. Christopher Nolan fan, and I think their their stars are very opposite. Supposed to go down that route. So. I, and I, and by the way, I don't disagree. I am not necessarily in the majority on Tarantino. I know his films get a lot of attention, but there's a lot of people who don't like it. They just don't for whatever reason. And I like Nolan a lot. No, come on, Nolan's a master, man. I get it. I get it. But <laughs> um, but Kill Bill is the first, I believe, the first time Quentin uh, started working with Robert Richardson, who's the best DP alive right yeah. now. Yeah one of them and uh so that really his style really took off do you know the story behind kill bill i don't know he he wrote the script and it was gonna be one movie but the script was like 210 pages and he (laughs) turned it into the studio they're like what and so they actually made it all at once and just really i think they released it just six months apart i'm pretty sure yeah Yeah. so yeah and I know there have cool. been talks. I don't know if it's just fan rumors, but uh, you know, there's these there's chatter going around that there might be a volume three. I'm not sure how they could pull off a volume three, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah, what is that? But I love how they play with time. I love how he plays with time and that. It's really cool. Yeah. Okay, Robin, we're going to get you out on this last question. So th- right. this might be a little bit controversial because y- you being a filmmaker, 
you know, <laughs> and having to maybe change something that your peers have done. Uh, but I, 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 this is my favorite question. So I would not call any of these people peers, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe in 20 years I'll be able to say something like that. But okay. So, Robin, if you could change the ending of any movie, which movie would it be and how would you change it? Just for some context, the most popular answer that we've gotten to this question is Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> what, like he lives or something? That's not, that's a cheat. That's a cheat. Like, God, there's plenty, like the big short, right? No, the market doesn't collapse and everybody doesn't lose their, you know, pensions. That's a cheat. Come on. It's the door, the door was big enough for him to get on. The door yeah, was yeah. big enough for him to get on. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> He was, yeah, by the way, he was hanging there. Come on. Uh, <laughs> so this actually won't be controversial to me because it's really about story. Um, and so there's I, I'm going to name a movie which I love because I think anytime I think of an ending should be changed is probably a movie I got mad at. And so it's not on like it's not my memory as much because it's not one of my favorite movies. Um, but this my answer will apply to a lot of movies. Let me put it that way. Any smart, and again, I'm going back to my love of thrillers and kind of those kind of movies. Any really smart thriller that ends in a the bad guy and the good guy and the good guy shoots the bad guy, like literally shoots and kills him, annoys me, okay? And so my, okay, my, okay. my because there's so many smarter ways that are much more, uh, they're much more, um, they would be so much better for an audience. They'd be just so much more satisfying for an audience than killing the bad guy. I want the bad guy to have to live with his mistakes forever. So I, so my, 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 uh, my example is collateral by Michael Mann, who I think is a great director. Okay. I, lo- I love the insider. I love heat. I love it. Collateral is a brilliant movie, right? It's well plotted. It's a great idea. It's Jamie Fox driving around in this cab and how's he going to get out of it? And that it comes back around to Jada Smith and there's is it. And then it ends with a fucking shootout on a train. It's like, no, no, like, no, like, I hate it. Like, come on. Like, that's the point I would turn the movie off maybe. So I go back to other movies. Like, I think he shot the bad guy in the fugitive. Am I right? Harrison Ford shoots the doctor. What? Uh, I think so. Gosh, it's been so long since I've seen this movie. I can't remember. (laughs) It's so much it's so much better if they don't like, like, uh, like, you know, but it's interesting. Cause you just brought Michael Mann up and I was going to wait for you to finish and ask his question. Cause you just brought up Michael Mann and in heat, it doesn't, it doesn't get more at the end of a, a good guy, kid, a bad guy in a shoot. As soon as you said that, I was like, that well, doesn't get more wait, power. I don't know. I get it. But to me, that's different because okay. either of them are the bad guy, right? Yeah. That you're rooting for both guys, and it's really a right and wrong movie. Also, the movie's about Robert De Niro not being able to give up. You know what I mean? He cannot walk yeah. away. He so wants revenge from this fucking guy. He had his shot to walk away with his new girl and money, and he couldn't do it. And that's the whole point. That's the tragedy of it. These other movies I'm talking about are straight good guy against bad guy, right? right, right. I'd rather see you know, a few good men and you lock up Jack Nicholson right now in that movie, there's no way he's going to kill Jack Nicholson, but you know what I mean? Right. Right. Uh, If you remember the movie witness, you know, um, Harrison Ford talks the guy out of killing all the Amish and he, you know, whatever. 
there's just there's just better fucking ways, yeah. you know. Like <laughs> collateral's so smart. It's so smart. And then it's a shootout and a chase. And I'm like now I know audiences love that shit, but I don't. Yeah. I I, yeah. I, I want it to be as smart as the rest of the movie. Well it's similar to like at the end of the Dark Knight, like Batman essentially loses like in that thing and the Joker gets away with it and there has to be a massive lie. There's no, no one really wins. There's no, no shootout. The the hero actually essentially loses, but kind of wins. So yeah. And I, I and that's my favorite film. So I definitely get yeah, that. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of movies like that, you know, they all end up with a shootout and I get it. I get it. Um, but to me, if you're talking about themes, real themes in a thriller and the difference between life and death or good and bad, um killing the guy just is that's not the end of the theme for me it's like eh, come on so then i that guess one. i guess a movie like no country for old men the way that that movie ends is that's more along the lines of the type of story that you want to see yeah i by the way the cones are a hard that's a hard name not to say my favorite director because, <laughs> oh nice, nice because by the way i well i love more of the cone movies than i do Sidney lumet movies because Sidney lumet not all of his movies were great but there's something about those 70s and 80s movies I always go back to. Partly it's the acting, partly it's the storytelling, because they take their time with storytelling then. Today you can't really. The cones are so good. There's only one movie I didn't like of the cones. Well, two. Um, but they're all great. No country I've seen a million times, and I love it. But yes, that is. Although, come on. I did not understand. I still to this day don't understand how you can kill Josh Brolin like that. Like just <laughs> they're driving down the street and he's just dead. I mean, you know, that, that Andre, I think we're going to need to get Robin back on for a, a general film chat. Yeah. It's, it's, it's snowballing into something else. And I just want to keep going. So we need to get oh, you back yeah. on. I love this. A general film chat, man. I'll do it again. Sometime, so, Robin, it, it has really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I've had a great time. Me too. It's been great, guys. Great. Well, Robin, um, I guess let's get let's get you out on this. If if there are people that want to uh, perhaps follow you, I, I don't know if uh, you know if you're into social media much, but if they perhaps want to you know follow you on social media or anything like that, how how can fans reach out to you? Yeah, I'm at uh, Robin Bissell on Twitter, and it's at Robin Bissell, R-O-B-I-N-B-I-S-S-E-L-L. And my Instagram is R-C Bissell. Middle name is Christopher. So my parents all, all almost named me Christopher Robin. Then they realized Winnie the Pooh, I would have been. <laughs> so in the hospital, they switched it. So thank God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Robin, honestly, thank you so much. This has been, thanks, it really has been such a great opportunity. I just, I just want to tell you thanks. Thanks again. And yes, I mean, like Ryan said, we would love to have you back on again. You know, when uh, when your um, Amazon project with Sam Rockwell, when that, you know, is complete, maybe we could have you back on and have another chat about that. But but thank you. Thank you so much. I had a, I had a real blast. Thanks, guys. Happy to do it anytime. The Backseat Director's theme song is Let's Go to the Movies by Ozo Motley. You can find the album Ozo Motley Presents Ozo Kids and all of their other music on iTunes. Join the conversation online and follow Backseat Directors on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't you want to go? Yeah! Let's go to the movies and take some friends. Never leave early. We'll watch it till the end. It's movie day. Yeah! The time has come. Types of movies we can all choose from. There's action, adventure, animation, and comedy. 
There's sci-fi and westerns and classics Documentaries, uh, so many options So much variety There's a perfect movie for you And him and her and me uh, So find your seat In the perfect row Sit back, relax, kick up your feet And turn off your phone 